Office of Personnel Management Director Kieran Ahuja faced some tough questions from members of the House Oversight and Accountability Committee. Members asked her about the government's hiring process, the federal health benefits program, and the retirement backlog. Republican committee members really bored in on one topic, and that's telework. They say federal telework leads to problems with public-facing federal services. Democrats and OPM officials argue it helps with recruitment and retention. Here with the latest, Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. And Drew, tell us about this argument over telework. I'm surprised they're still arguing about that. It's definitely not a new topic, Tom. It's something that both Democrats and Republicans have been talking about for quite a while about the federal government. For example, just earlier this Congress... The House passed the Show Up Act, which would return federal employees to pre-pandemic telework levels. So it's clearly something that Republicans and leaders on the House Oversight and Accountability Committee are now pushing much harder on this as well. They said that it's causing backlogs, delays at several agencies like the Social Security Administration, the IRS, etc. And there's a lot of concerns about just public-facing services. They also raise questions about the role of locality pay, how that factors into telework as well. If you have employees who are working from home, but they get D.C.-based locality pay, they were questioning the spending on that as well. But Democrats, on the other hand, said that there's a bit of a finer line between telework during the pandemic and this idea of longer-term telework and putting that into long-term federal workforce reform. Representative Jerry Connolly from Virginia. The frustration I think we're hearing from a lot of our colleagues is the aftermath of universal remote working in a pandemic. That is not a telework program. Rightfully so, my friends on this side of the aisle are saying, hey, when, does, when do we go back to work in a more normal style? Robust telework programs existed before the pandemic and will exist after the pandemic, and we want them. We want them well-managed, we want them overseen, we want them productive, we want them improving morale. That's what Jerry Connolly had to say. Right, and on the other side, you have James Comer, the committee's chairman, who said it's not so cut and dry as well. He is saying that the federal workforce should return to pre-pandemic work conditions, but not necessarily forever. We would support telework yes, if we have evidence that it saves money and doesn't cost efficiency and productivity in the federal government. If telework is the way to go and it saves money and doesn't do anything to harm the the productivity of the the federal employees, we will go along with it. But then we're going to sell those buildings that are empty in downtown Washington, like the mayor, uh, Mayor Bowser, has suggested uh, to try to save money. What about Kieran Ahuja, the OPM director? She said that essentially the pandemic no longer dictates workplace arrangements for the, for the federal workforce, and it's emphasized more on lessons learned now. So taking how telework operated during the pandemic and adjusting as necessary, but continuing to emphasize that remote work and telework options are important wherever possible. OPM also issued a new memo just this week that focused on the future of work and really hammered down or hammered in this idea of telework is important. She said that some of the issues or backlogs, delays, things that were going on in other agencies during the pandemic weren't necessarily the result of telework. Now, I can't speak specifically to what's happening um, at SSA, uh, but I will tell you at the President Management Council level, we talk about these issues and it includes the acting commissioner of SSA. And oftentimes we need to ensure we're looking at every factor to determine Uh, Is it telework? Is it staffing? Are there other issues 
the need to make IT enhancements in order to be able to streamline some of those processes. Again, OPM Director Karen Ahuja. And then the retirement backlog, which is something that people are hitting OPM over the head with for years, that also came up at the hearing. Ahuja was asked about that. What's the latest? This is something that is a concern for all members on the committee. They said that the fact that it takes so long to process retirement requests from federal employees If you have someone submit a retirement case at the end of the year, they might not see that reflected in their paycheck for several months down the road. Representative Andy Biggs said that the delays can be up to 13 months at some times. And during that time, annuitants get just a portion of their payments while they wait for the paperwork to be completed. That's outrageous. I appreciate that OPM took some time to provide briefings to staff earlier this week. However, My team reports that OPM staff provided conflicting information on current processing times, refused to provide an update on the existing backlog, and referenced the hope that OPM will onboard two additional staff by the end of the fiscal year. In short, we came away very dissatisfied. Requests for updates on actual cases by email and phone go unreturned, and our constituents feel like no one can help them. There's Andy Biggs, and did Ahuja have any response to that? She said that OPM is planning to launch a retirement app later this year that will include some different tools like an annuity calculator and a chatbot feature to help answer questions about retirement. The goal is to streamline and modernize the process, but she said, you know, this is going to take some time. It is a paper-based system right now, and she's trying to move that along, but many OPM directors have made this a priority, so we'll see how that plays out. Well, it's been from a number of years of underfunding within retirement services. We have not had the investments around staffing and also doing the modernization efforts that we're now doing that's going to take time. I will say, though, that even with the surge in retirement, uh, we have, with uh, situational telework, uh, with folks in the office, It's a paper-based process. We have actually improved processing. Actually, the number of cases that we've processed, we've actually improved that by 20%. All right, so there's Karen Ahuja. This hearing was all over the place, Drew, and I'm glad you were the one to have to sit through it. Federal government hiring reform. This comes up, you know, pretty much every year for the past 25 years. What did the members have this year to say to Ahuja about that? It was a lot of very similar types of arguments, just that the federal government is kind of at this critical point where we have a very small portion of the federal workforce under the age of 30, just 7%. And there's challenges with how to hire younger federal employees. Ahuja said that's been a huge focus for OPM. And Democrats argued that uh, telework is important in that equation, too. Ahuja said that there's going to be a talent management plan that OPM is going to submit to Congress this year, and that she's basically trying to plan for more hiring flexibilities, increases in pay, and other ways to try to make it a little bit easier to hire job applicants. All right. And questions about the Federal Employee Health Benefits Program, that GAO report, which we had on the Federal Drive about a month ago, said that there is not sufficient controls against ineligible enrollees. People can enroll wives that were divorced a long time ago, this kind of thing. And there's no evidence that there's great controls against that. Did she have a plan there too, Ahuja? Right. That GAO report, it said that FEHB was spending about a billion dollars a year on these ineligible members. So this gained a lot of attention from some of the committee members. OPM just doesn't have a process to identify and remove those members. So who just said that she is trying to 
manage those improper payments. She didn't give a clear plan, but she said OPM is soon planning to issue an interim final rule to try to address that. Well, it looks like under the budget plan, she'll have plenty of money to do all these things. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. Be sure to check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of looking like magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in looking like magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped 
influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State. It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an wow. audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness 
toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort I, of the I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. You that's know? <laughs> and um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.